The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. September 11th, 2022. We now augment the recitation of the time zones with the date by request of one of our Dublin listeners, Tony Allwright, and also seconded by a listener in the realm of New Zealand. Uh, As the uh, proclaiming herald said uh, earlier today, New Zealand time. So it is... 3 p.m. in Ottawa, that's 4 p.m. in Nassau, half past four in St. John's, 5 p.m. at King Edward Point, 6 p.m. on Ascension Island, 7 p.m. on Tristan de Cunha, 8 p.m. in the Imperial Metropolis, 9 p.m. on Malta GC, where the royal wife of a young naval lieutenant spent some of her happiest days, 10 p.m. in the Prince Edward Islands, 11 p.m. in Port Louis, midnight in the Macdonald Islands, 1 a.m. in the British Indian Ocean Territory, 2 a.m. on Christmas Island, 3 a.m. in Brunei, 3.45 a.m. in Cocklebiddy, 5 a.m. in Port Moresby, 6 a.m. on Norfolk Island, 7 a.m. in Auckland, 8 a.m. in Samoa, 9 a.m. in the Cook Islands, uh, where are we, 11 a.m. in the Pitcairn Islands, 12 noon in Whitehorse, 1 p.m. in uh, in Moose Jaw, 2 p.m. in Belize City, and 3 p.m. in Ottawa. Oh, wait a minute, we've done Ottawa. Oh, my, the sun sets on the longest rains. Eventually. But even so, the sun does not set on the British Commonwealth. Did you hear, uh, did you hear about that uh, little boy who got uh, so excited at a cricket match that he ran onto the pitch and uh, knocked the umpire over and wound up sitting on the poor fellow's belly. And his dad was absolutely disgusted and went up to him and said, don't you know, laddie, the sun never sits on the British umpire. Okay, it was the suggestion of Elissa Angel that we amend our traditional recitation of the time zones for this week. The Queen is dead. Long live the King. If you have never considered the truth of that proposition before, you can certainly appreciate it this weekend. Long live the King, uh, proclaimed the Herald outside Rideau Hall in Ottawa in what was frankly a fiasco of a royal proclamation. Australia had way too much Aboriginal dancing for my tastes, Yours may vary. I'd account New Zealand's the best effort so far. The, the Metropolitan version at St. James's Palace left out, if I heard correctly, the traditional reference to, quote, gentlemen of quality, uh, presumably because it's hard to say that with a straight face when Boris Johnson 
David Cameron and Tony Blair are in the room. Uh, September 11th is, of course, not just the third day of a new king and head of the Commonwealth, uh, but the 21st anniversary of, quote, the day the world changed. And if you mean by the day the world changed, the day the world doubled the rate of Islamic immigration to the West, well, you are quite correct. It is too sad, too pathetic. Uh, We did at Stein Online annual observances of 9-11 until 9-11-2017. And then for reasons you can hear me articulate on our Clubland Q&A that very day five years ago, We abandoned that tradition because that chump mad dog Mathis was the final straw. The men who rule us were not serious about the new war, and so we lost it. Uh, Let us get to your questions, because that's what it's all about. You know how this works. Anybody, anywhere uh, on the planet is free to listen to this show. You do not even have to be in a member state of the Commonwealth of Nations. Uh, If you are an entirely foreign person from the steppes of Central Asia or the wild savanna of Francophone Africa, you are free to listen to this show. You only uh, have to be a member to ask a question, so if you have no desire to ask a question, then uh, feel free just to listen, and we hope... Uh, enjoy it. John Fatchy says, welcome back, Mark. Your guest hosts were well up to the task. Yes, the guest host's guest host was particularly popular. Um, uh, Laura Rosen Cohen made her debut on this show a couple of weeks ago, and people, I, I don't think the email has stopped from persons who enjoyed it. Uh, John says, is there historical significance to the Queen residing for her end days at Balmoral, or is it a coincidence of the seasons? Well, well, (laughs) the Queen spent every summer at Balmoral. She loved summering at Balmoral. Um, And that was one of the things that, uh, among many others, that the Princess of Wales, and I have no doubt the Duchess of Sussex, did not care for. Because if you ask people of their general dispositions, oh, where, where would, if you could spend summer anywhere on earth, where would it be? And there would be an awful lot of places, from Saint Tropez to the Bahamas, that would come that would come higher on the list than Royal Deeside. But the Queen loved it there, and that's why she was there this summer, as every summer she loved uh, walking in the uh, uh, in in amongst the heather around uh, around the castle. My my daughter and I were there. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, actually, I was I was uh, researching one little thing just for a, uh, a scene in the Prisoner of Windsor, a summer diversion from a couple of years ago that didn't actually make it into the final thing. But I wanted to make sure I'd gotten it right, so my daughter and I went to Balmoral, and we also went to uh, Mar Lodge, which is uh, <laughs> great. But we stayed at Ballater which is the little village near Balmar. There's only a couple of hundred people, but they've all, they all know the Queen and they all love the Queen. Uh, and it was, uh, it was 
actually, it was great to just be among them. Uh, we, we arrived, I, I'd reserved at the little inn in that village. And uh, my daughter and I showed up very late. It had been a long journey from, I think it was Glasgow or Edinburgh. <laughs> and I said, I think you have a, a couple of rooms reserved for us. And uh, she said, uh, the lady said, oh, no, I don't think so. And <laughs> it turns out, I said, oh, we booked on the website. She said, oh, I only check the website once a week. And so uh, they were having, uh, my daughter thought she'd landed in some Scottish theme park because they were having uh, reels, the Gay Gordons and all the rest of it uh, being played uh, in, in, the, uh, in the lounge. And uh, so the lounge was full of Scottish dancing and we settled in amongst them while they got our rooms ready and they prepared us a, a wonderful supper, actually. And uh, and my daughter familiarized herself with the Gay Gordons and then we went to Balmoral the following morning. Um, it's it, The Queen, you can see why the Queen would love it. If you like the things the Queen loves, Balmoral is the perfect place to be. And I love the I love the relaxed way. This is this was a story one of her staff told for the Platinum Jubilee just a couple of months ago. But it's the perfect royal story. Uh, he's accompanying her as they're on a walk a couple of years back uh, through the woods around Balmoral, and they run into, as they often did, uh, tourists. And in this case, the couple of people it was an American couple, and they introduced themselves. And uh, they said, oh, do you, they didn't recognize the queen. And so they said, oh, do you live uh, around here? And she goes, well, I live in London, uh, but I have a holiday home near here. <laughs> and, the, uh, and the guy, uh, so the guy, the American guy goes, oh, wow, that's incredible. Uh, have you ever seen, the? Uh, have you ever met the queen? And the queen said, no, I've never met the queen. But she pointed to the member of staff and said, but he has lots of times. And so the guy goes, oh, wow, can I get a picture <laughs> with the with the servant? <laughs> so... Uh, uh, so he comes and he's with the member of staff and he hands the Queen a camera to take a picture of the American couple with the member of staff. <laughs> and they're all enjoying the member. Uh, the guy's enjoying this immensely. And so but he knows, you know, they're going to feel cheated if they get back home. And think, so he, he lets them have a photograph with the Queen. <laughs> Although they're not terribly bothered because they think the other guy's the exciting guy because he's actually met the Queen. Anyway, that's why one reason why this Queen, like Queen Victoria, loved uh, Balmoral. Um, it was just a coincidence of the seasons that she died there, except that she had uh, broken with her familiar schedule since the COVID began. She'd basically abandoned Buckingham Palace as a residence and spent all her time at Windsor. She didn't even get to go to Sandringham for Christmas. You know, the rhythms of the year were kind of important to her. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to go full on crazy and suggest that the vaccines killed her or whatever, but I do think... The COVID isolated her and depressed her and uh, was so weird and such an aberration from how she lived that uh, I wouldn't mind betting that it, had it not been for the COVID, she might have gone on to equal 
her mum's uh, longevity of 102. You know, it's no particular secret she didn't actually particularly care for Boris Johnson very much, so she was quite happy just to to reduce her audiences with him to Zoom calls. But I understand that, in fact, it was uh, she who wished to see Justin Trudeau when he landed, whatever, three or four months ago, um, in part because, you know, for whatever reason, she first met him when he was a two-year-old boy or something, and she's always liked him. There were people who are not thought of as particularly monarchist or particularly royalist, although he did tear up when announcing the death of the Queen, which appears to have been genuine. But people like uh, his predecessor in Ottawa, Jean Chrétien, uh, she loves Chrétien's company. She thought he was a great laugh and always enjoyed seeing him. And I think not being able to and, – and people don't understand the number of people she did see. She was a sociable person. Um, and uh, uh, I, won't, uh, <laughs> I won't embarrass him by mentioning his name, but I, I once uh, bumped into – in London. I'd landed in London and I bumped into – uh, an, an old acquaintance of mine from the Canadian Senate, and I said, "Oh, what uh, are you doing in town?" He said, uh, "Oh, uh, I'm. I've just come back from the pa- having dinner at the palace." Uh, I go, oh, "Why? Why? Why was that?" And she said, uh, "He said, well, I'm. I'm a member of this uh, Commonwealth Eminent Persons Group." And I said, "Oh, really? What's it? What's it called?" And he said, "The Eminent Persons Group." And uh, the Queen just saw a procession of people like that all the time. And I think to do what was done to her by the COVID, whether it was by her choice or by the government's choice or whoever's choice, but certainly uh, it was very important while all the old people were dying to make sure that this particular old person stayed alive. But it was so different from how she'd lived before that I don't, I really don't, I don't think it can have helped. I don't think it can have helped. Let's leave it at that. Uh, Mary Bindus or Binders writes, uh, Hi, Mark. I've heard the appellation Elizabeth the Great has been suggested as a remembrance. I have great respect for Queen Elizabeth. However, since socialists never sleep, and this is a rather general term, could this be a ruse of the left? To be honest, much that went on these past 70 years was not all positive for the realm. But she withstood the slang, slings and arrows. She fought back with grace and dignity. I feel that Elizabeth the Kind would be a more fitting remembrance, as few could disagree that her kindness was great, says Mary. You can't... I don't know. I mean, everything has been so... St- I've been staggered at how amateurish compared to 70 years ago. So I put I put what's gone on, actually, in the last couple of days in the same... Uh, category as, uh, you know, trying to find a first-rate trombonist in any city apart from London, New York, and Los Angeles. These I put I, a jazz trombonist, I mean, and not a classical one. Uh, but, but I put it in the, I'm beginning to put it in the same category as portraiture or sculpture or the composition of symphonies and operas. Uh, that being able to uh, inaugurate a new reign is one of those lost skills. And um, so everything has been so vulgar and bungled. 
Um, it wouldn't surprise me if actually they passed a resolution at Westminster saying that they were going to designate her Elizabeth the Great. The, the fact is you can't, you can't, that's posterity confers that. Doesn't matter whether it's Alfred the Great or whatever it was, Ethelred the Un was it Ethelred the Unready? Well, whoever was unready. I, I'm not really ready to answer questions about which king was unready. Uh, but whoever it was, that's conferred by posterity. If uh, you can't just decide to designate her Elizabeth the Great, that is completely and utterly ludicrous. And it actually would be such pathetic special pleading. When you look, for example, I mean, it's no particular secret. I regard the greatest period of human history compared to what went before and since as the uh, world that existed between 1848 and uh, 1914. And um, and our, our Queen Victoria was a big part of that. And nobody said, oh, are we going to call her Victoria the Great? No, this is silly stuff. This is childish. I wish they'd just, uh, do you know, to go back to Jean Chrétien, he had a fantastic idea at the time of the Queen's Golden Jubilee 20 years ago. He did it just to wind up the separatists, which he was very good at doing. But he just decided he was good. <laughs> whatever the old lingo was of whatever the last one. I don't know what he took, the you know, George V's lingo from the... 1937 Silver Jubilee, 1936 Silver Jubilee, 1935 Silver Jubilee. I'll get it right eventually. 1935 Silver Jubilee, uh, and he just took the same language uh, about your most humble and worthy and groveling subjects, etc. <laughs> and just, you know, uh, insert date of new jubilee here and just did it to wind up the separatists he was good at that but i honestly think that's the best thing to do just take the old dated lingo just do what they did 70 years ago and just and just knock it off with the crapola that you you come up with to uh, to make it to vary it peter mckinley says hi mark do you think that king charles and his children will actually be able to rise up to anywhere near the level of dignity and duty of queen elizabeth his first remarks and william's outreach to harry make me somewhat more optimistic well he actually did something in his first speech he he basically said you know you may think of me as the great reset guy the climate change guy uh, I am going to set all that to one side now and take up my kingly duties. And he did say rather alarmingly that he hoped uh, his son, the new Prince of Wales, William, would take up that, uh, take up all his causes, which I certainly hope he doesn't. But you know something? The thing is, he's won on all that rubbish. I mean, if you believe as he does about the environment, right? Then the last 40 years have been a fabulous victory for you. When he started talking about the environment in the 80s, the Prince of Wales was portrayed as a crank who talks to his plants. Right? Now here we are 40 years later and the entire Western world is committing suicide in order to build a world for the Prince of Wales's plants to be talked to in. He's won. He won that. It's incredible because, as I said, uh, the consensus was that he was a nutter. 
He was a freak. He was a whack job uh, in the 1980s. <laughs> Look, he's talking to his plants again, right? Yeah, he's talking to his plants and saying, ah, they're all laughing now. But just you wait and see in 40 years time, governments all over the planet are going to be saying, <laughs> we're outlawing the internal combustion engine starting in eight years' time. I think it's, that's uh, California's just out, uh, just uh, decided to commit eco-suicide. He won on that, so he can afford to set it aside and coast in his final years. Uh, I don't. Th- I think there is something going on. I'm. I, I'm. I think he's playing it carefully in these first few days. You know, for most, for the model of kingship that people like, is his mother's. So he's not going to disturb that before the funeral. But I, uh, how much of this great reset? Th- and as I suggested to David Starkey the other day, the point of the headship of the Commonwealth is that it's beyond the restraints of any prime minister. Don't forget the only reason, I'm just sort of riffing historically here, but the only reason the headship of the Commonwealth is really a thing is because, uh, what year would this be now? 1973, when uh, the Queen's Canadian prime minister, Pierre Trudeau, Justin's dad, or not Justin's dad, if you believe the internet. But anyway, the first prime minister called Trudeau uh, wanted the Queen to open the Commonwealth Conference in Ottawa. And her UK prime minister at that time, Ted Heath, was horrified. He thought it was a terrible idea. Of course, the, the Queen took the advice of her Canadian Prime Minister on what was regarded as a Canadian matter, what she would do on Canadian soil, and went to every Commonwealth conference thereafter for uh, the next 45 years. Now, uh, that, gave, that created a... That big bulked up the headship of the Commonwealth, which is a role that has no constitutional restraints from prime ministers in the UK, in Canada, Australia, Belize, Papua New Guinea, anywhere else. And I think uh, I think the Prince of Wales, uh, pardon me, His Majesty the King, I can't get used to that. I think His Majesty the King sees opportunities there for all the Great Reset stuff. So it'll be interesting to have a look at that. Lev Schmuckler writes, Oh, the Lord Stein himself will conduct Q&A. Since early Wikipedia around 2008, hope existed that His Majesty's regnal name would be George Seventh, as in Charles Albert Arthur George. I think it's Charles Philip Arthur George, actually, but uh, sadly not, says Lev, who was looking forward to George Seventh. Uh, because generally the Charleses are not regarded as a great... Charles I, as you know, wound up with his head chopped off and Charles II uh, was uh, dis- dissolute and promiscuous, so they're not regarded as good models. But he he's doing this because uh, this idea where you can be called Fred all your life and then suddenly you become king and you decide you're going to be King Nigel instead. People, I don't think people accept that anymore. It's the fact that when you've lived your life in the public eye as Charles uh, or uh, or Chuck, 
as the more vernacular people say. Or, you know, what's, what was that Australian song for the royal and lady? Die, 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 said, stick it in your eye. The only one I'm going to marry is Prince Charlie. So when you mean Charles, Chuck, Charlie, Charlie, uh, for decades, it's very hard, I think, to change your name. I think that's the main reason for that. Eric Dale says, hey, Mark, I have to slightly disagree with you that the U.S. government lost the war after 9-11. It seems to me that they just substituted al-Qaeda with Trump supporters. How far will the present government go utilizing anti-terrorism legislation aimed at jihadists against domestic political opposition? Uh, Well, they'll go as far as they want to go, Eric. I mean, there's really no restraints. I I, I made this point to Mr. Snurdly on the radio the other day. Uh, I think it's it's the key difference. Um, In in the end, uh, as much as I loathe Jacinda Ardern, say, I don't have to worry about the government of New Zealand killing me. Uh, As much as I might not care for the idiocies coming from the Swedish government, I don't have to worry about the Swedish government killing me. But I think if I think January the 6th has actually and the Mar-a-Lago raid have taught us that there are actually no limits uh, to what the United States, the deeply corrupt Uh, regime uh, that governs the United States will do. Now, the point you're making is that basically, and this is why first principles are important, and you hardly ever hear, you hardly ever hear um, people talking about first principles in America these days. Everything is transactional. But that's why, uh, as as someone who Uh, supported George W. Bush 21 years ago, I nevertheless opposed the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. I thought it wasn't going to do anything for the challenge that lay before us, and I was certainly right on that point. Um, But I thought it would, I thought it would, it it was the first example of how uh, the, the new war were the burdens of the new war were basically going to fall on uh, the uh, the citizenry of the of the country at war. Now that's worth doing. I mean, people will put up with wartime privations if the guys waging the war, uh, if the politicians are serious about winning the war. But here we are. We lost the bloody war. We have, so we have, as I've been saying for almost 20 years now, whenever anybody's asked me about it, I mean, I go back, I've said it on Rush, I've said it on Tucker, uh, I've said it on Hugh Hewitt, I go, I've said it on Howie Carr, I've said it on uh, late friends like uh, Don and Roma and their wonderful morning show in Chicago. Uh, so I've been saying it for the, almost the entire period. We have something ridiculous here. And it's even more absurd right now at a time of so-called pandemic. But you have a country on orange alert. Uh, And so that means that grandma uh, has to take off her leg brace 
If she she's 87 years old, but they want to take off the leg brace and examine it if she's flying from Boston to Chicago. But at the same time, we're on an orange alert and we have a completely open southern border. So in fact, in fact, the majority of the illegal immigrants here, it's officially 12 million. It's apparently been unchanged for decades. But it's actually more like 30 million, probably 40 million by now. And most of those people have walked into a country on orange alert. So that's why I oppose the Department of Homeland Security and all the stupidity uh, of uh, that first uh, Norman Mineta, Bush's transportation secretary, who's dead now, uh, but who, who came up with this stupid thing that everybody, they would universalize all the strictures, and there would be no end to that. So the war's lost, and you're still shuffling shoeless uh, through the uh, through through the security line. And again, by the way, on this shuffling shoeless thing, what I find odd is you don't have to take your shoes off anywhere else. I've just been in uh, Britain and Europe. Uh, for a couple of months. So I've been going through Heathrow. I've been in Belfast. I've been in Dublin. I've been in Zurich. I've been in Marseille. I've been in Paris. I've been in Nice. I've been in airports all over the place. And not one of them has made me take my shoes off. So something's very odd here. Either, Either every other nation has got some special sophisticated device that is able to determine uh, that that your shoes are non-incendiary, or the whole crappy TSA bollocks of shoe removal is just pure theatre meant to teach the populace to do as you're told. And because actually the removal of shoes is, uh, I think, particularly degrading, in fact. You know, uh, so some some supermodel-sized woman has to remove her shoes and she's (laughs) suddenly some runty little thing uh, a foot and a half below you uh, having to... Some uh, sophisticated uh, man has to take off his shoes off and he's just like... Nobody is retains dignity in their stocking feet. And uh, I'm psyched... I cite none other than the Queen on that, actually. Uh, on the Royal Yacht, Pierre Trudeau uh, once remarked uh, that uh, when she was on the Royal Yacht Britannia and it was the end of a long day and she wanted to have a laugh, the Queen would kick her shoes off and she would be in her stocking feet. And that's what the Queen did on the Royal Yacht Britannia, but the Queen wouldn't have shuffled through airports in her stocking feet. So, as I said... What, what's the deal here? Does the uh, La République Française, does the Swiss Confederation, does the United Kingdom, do they have some special machine that they're denying to Americans and their special machines are able to t- determine that your footwear is safe? Or is it just theatre designed over two decades to teach you you are just part of a great ovine herd shuffling? Uh, like sheep uh, being uh, rounded up and uh, rooted into a pet. Well, I think it's the latter. Now, we didn't. The thing about it is that until COVID and until January the 6th, they were a little coy about it. 
And then suddenly we have learned, if you're paying attention, that basically, since that basically these tools, which were designed to, for 24-7 surveillance, so that if some guy plotting something in a cave in the Hindu Kush makes the mistake of using a telephone and happens to use a certain code word uh, to uh, some uh, guy in Berlin or some guy in Virginia, that the 24-7 surveillance state will be on that, be on that instantly and will prevent him blowing up whatever he was going to blow up. And instead, all that stuff, all those tools have been turned. And we know this now since January the 6th on the citizens of the United States. That was basically the patriation of the war on terror. After the fall of Afghanistan uh, finally confirmed it, the war on terror came home, and all those tools are now used against U.S. citizens, uh, against actually half the population, as Joe Biden made clear in that speech just the other day. These are very disturbing trends. And actually, a lot of the usual sort of uh, bluster of politics doesn't cover what's at risk here. Because, uh, I, I've, again, it's a line I've used uh, many times over the years. The, these tools are extraordinary. It's not, I'm not saying I'm a genius. I generally quote Tocqueville. Because Tocqueville made the point that a medieval king, there were limits to what he could do to you. Because you were hundreds of miles from the palace, you were in your barnyard, uh, mucking about with your cows and all the rest of it, and he could send some pantalooned emissary into your dooryard to give you a hard time about uh, not paying the bovine flatulence tax or whatever. But he didn't, he couldn't, the king, the medieval king, could not impact every detail of social life every second of the day. That's what can happen now. And what they're talking about is ways that will make it even easier for them. So that, for example, uh, if there's no cash, if it's digital currency, so if your digital currency is tied to your social credit scores, we've already had dry runs for that. I talk, I, I've talked before about Peter Brimelow's website, vdare.com. Now, the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, says that vdare.com is a uh, hate site. Well, you know, to me, the SPLC is a hate site. They're uh, a bunch of sex fiends who keep all their money in uh, in little uh, tax uh, ref uh, tax havens. Uh, well, British colonial tax havens in the Caribbean. So. Uh, uh, so the SPLC goes around calling everybody else haters. They get very rich damning everybody else's haters. Then they use that money uh, to salt it away in the Cayman Islands uh, while they withdraw enough to, uh, to sexually uh, oppress the chicks who have the misfortune to go to work for them. It's an evil institution, the SPLC. But they damn... But for some reason, everybody takes them as official. They, they look on that as the government designator of official haters. And so Peter Brimelow found in the last couple of years, you know, that his website, oh, you can't raise money on PayPal. Oh, no, MasterCard now says you can't. So, so basically, vdare.com 
has been a trial run for how it's going to go in the cashless world. Uh, there's going to be a few people who have access. Your, your so-called digital, you, you will look, as they say, you will look very rich on paper or on screen. Oh, oh that's fantastic. I, I had no idea. Apparently, I've got $7 million. And then you try to use it, say, to launch an anti-immigration website, and suddenly you don't have access to that $7 million. You can ask Peter Brimelo about how that goes over at vdare.com because he's living it right now. He was the pilot program for this. So all these tools, and we've seen it now again, no one seriously thinks anything is going to be done about immigration. Oh, I know some of you. Oh, I'm so excited about the coming red wave. Yes, I check the polls every day. And oh, what's this? I'm looking at real clear politics. And uh, oh, how did that happen? Uh, uh, the Democrats seem to have a four point advantage. Oh, and the Senate, uh, it's so far, it's 46-46 with most of the other eight, the eight seats. Oh, that's not going to Anyway, if you still believe in the red wave, even if there were a red wave, they wouldn't do anything about something like uh, immigration. So all these tools, COVID has told them uh, they can get away with telling you what they can get away with telling you what to do. They can get away with, oh, oh, you're a perfectly healthy 17-year-old. Why don't you have three or four jabs of this thing you don't really need? Yeah. So, yeah, the war on terror has come home. And I do not mean that in a good way at all, at all. Uh, we're going to have more of your questions in uh, just a moment. But as you know, I'd like to calm down. I'm getting a little excited. Time for a musical interlude. It always calms me down. We're going to have one of the Queen's favorite songs on Song of the Week in uh, a couple of hours here at Stein Online. This is another of her favorite songs. The last time I heard it sung live uh, was at the dedication of Hillsdale College's beautiful new chapel uh, just a couple of years ago. I was there with Molly Hemingway, whom you know from the Fox News All-Stars, and Pat Sajak, whom you know from Wheel of Fortune, and Clarence Thomas, whom you know from the United States Supreme Court. It was a delightful weekend. It's a beautiful chapel, and the Hillsdale Choir gave a lovely performance of this piece, even though, as I remarked to Molly, it seemed to me very Anglican, uh, considering the dispositions of those in attendance. Hubert Parry wrote this for the coronation of King Edward VII in 1902, uh, which was almost as big a fiasco as that Canadian proclamation yesterday. Sir Frederick Bridge uh, misjudged the timing, so the music ended and the king had not yet arrived at the abbey, so the poor old organist, Walter Alcock, had to vamp till ready. But people liked the music, so Sir Hubert tweaked it for the coronation of George V uh, a decade or so later, and it was then used for the coronations of George VI and Elizabeth II. It's also very popular at royal weddings and funerals too. But here it is in its coronation version, complete with all the vivat reginas. Uh, Sir Hubert Parry's magnificent setting uh, of the 122nd Psalm. I was glad when they said unto me. 
Choir of St Paul's Cathedral, directed by Barry Rose, with Christopher Darnley at the organ, and Sir Hubert Perry's setting of Psalm 122 in its coronation version, with all those splendid vivat reginas that we will not be saying for a while. Clubland Q&A, live around His Majesty's Dominions, live around the world. Let us get back uh, to your questions. Kim says, I read that children are not being taught about 9-11 in school. How would you teach that moment in history to school children, and why do you think it is not covered now? Well, I'm, I'm not actually particularly uh, in favour of teaching stuff from 20 years ago as history, particularly not when you live in a country which spends 20 bloody years running around Afghanistan to no effect whatsoever, because obviously it's not history. Uh, those kid, those If you were uh, starting in grade school the year after 9-11, you could very well have wound up serving in the Afghan campaign that began in October 2001. So I don't think it counts as history when it's still going on. Um, but I, I'll say, I know what you, the point you're making, Kim, and it goes back right to the bloody beginning of this thing. If you uh, look at my book, The Face of the Tiger, toward the end of that book, there's an essay reflecting on the first year of the war, because it's basically September 2001 to September 2002, that book. So 20 years ago, I was writing this. Uh, and the stuff in there about how, uh, for example, the Islamophobia, the Islamophobia of the post 9-11 era is being compared to the internment of uh, the Japanese uh, by FDR during World War II. So that's how they started. That's how these buggers started teaching 9-11, uh, before the dust had even settled. And as I went on to point out, you know, Bush thought, because America has the best army in the world and the best generals in the world, with the most medals in the world and the biggest budget in the world, that he could just leave it to the soldiery. And everyone else could just go shopping, as he told us. You know, oh, you want to contribute to the uh, do your bit for the war? Go to the mall. Uh, he missed the point. This was a cultural struggle. And the cultural nihilism, uh, at best, and the fact that the, the left is cheering for the other side, really, at worst, you know, and, and it's electing people to Congress whose characterization of 9-11 is, uh, as Ilan Omar says, some people did something. That's why we lost. You know, Ezra Levant said something that sounded slightly poor taste uh, around about, uh, what was this, 2005, uh, the year of the Mohammed cartoons. He said that in the fullness of time, the Mohammed cartoons would come to be seen as a more significant event than 9-11. Uh, and people thought that, as I said, people thought it was a bit in poor taste because thousands of people died on 9-11. And in fact, only a relatively small number of people died as a result of the Mohammed cartoons. But the Mohammed cartoon, he was, but in, in the bigger scheme of things, 
he was right. The Mohammed cartoons told you where we were headed, that we were going, that when it came to core Western liberties, like freedom of speech, we were going to assimilate to Islam rather than Islam uh, assimilate to us. So when nobody, when those cartoonists were threatened with death and nobody at Le Monde or the London Times or the New York Times or the Globe and Mail in Toronto was willing to publish those cartoons, uh, that actually rewarded uh, the people who think that the strictures of Islam should apply to everyone else. And so eventually, uh, and, and so at that point, the Western Standard, for which Ezra and I then worked in Canada, published the cartoons, and Charlie Hebdo published the cartoons. And Charlie Hebdo, those guys are all dead, and Ezra and I are just about still around, just about. But the, the point that Ezra was making is that this is a civilizational, cultural struggle. And so you can't outsource it to the soldiery and say, because then you have the reason we lost in Afghanistan. Oh, we're devoting so many men and so many tanks and so many cruise missiles and so many drones. We're bound to win. No, 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 you complete ass. Not if you have no idea... Uh, why those drones and cruise missiles and tanks and men are there and you have no sense of strategic purpose, no war aims, no, uh, no actual uh, purpose to all the men and material you're committing to the thing. That's what an unlimited budget and no brain gets you. Afghanistan. Thoroughly modern Millie. That's how guys like thoroughly... They thought, oh, this, this is a huge war. We've never had a budget like this. This is fantastic. I'm going to... The budget will allow me to... Ex uh, right now, I've only got medals from shoulder to scrotum. But uh, with this war, I'll be able to extend them from my scrotum all down to my kneecaps. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. And the, and the American right, with oh, we support our troops, we support our troops. No, anyone can do that. We saw all the stupid yellow ribbon bumper stickers, we support our troops. What you have to do is support the mission, which means you have to know what the mission is, which means you have to have a mission. Uh, heart. So that's that's the thing, Kim. You know, it's just being taught in school as part of the reasons why America is evil. So it's part of the 1619 Project. You know, oh, the 1619 Project, America introduced slavery to the entire planet. It hadn't occurred to anyone before. Uh, but in 1619, uh, American innovation was so crackerjack that they invented human slavery. Uh, and then after 2001, they decided to uh, diversify a little in, from human slavery uh, into Islamophobia. Moron! Moron alert! That's, that's fine if you're like that woman that Megyn Kelly and I were talking about uh, who thinks the Queen committed genocide. But at some point, you know, societies that don't know anything don't don't survive, don't survive. Hart says, I mean, they do survive. I mean, you can say that, I suppose, about a lot of Middle Eastern 
societies where there's no real intellectual inquiry, they can stagnate. Um, and in a competitive environment, they wouldn't normally survive. But when you've only got to be better than the great void that is Western civilization right at the moment, it's why I don't bother apologizing for anything. The best thing that could happen to anyone almost anywhere on the planet is that you're colonized by the British Empire. And that's true almost anywhere you go. It'll explain why... Uh, Barbados is better than Haiti. It'll explain why Malaysia is better than Indonesia. It's true and explains why the Indian subcontinent, whatever you may think of it, is better than uh, the Arabian Peninsula because the Arabian Peninsula only got Western colonization, as you know, if you listen to the 100 Years Ago show, 100 years ago, when basically the civilizing mission of the British Empire was lost. Anyway, Hart says, welcome back, Mark. If we have learned but one thing in the years since uh, September 11th, 2001, it is that in the immortal words of Walt Kelly, we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. We enlightened Westerners have done far, far more damage to ourselves than any bearded, power-mad, head-thumping paedophile hiding in a desert cave could ever have imagined. The totalitarian left has time and again displayed leniency, even favoritism, to radical Islam and its adherents, and seems to have come to consider radical Islam somewhat of an ally in the fight against mean old traditional Western values and culture. But is this a fatal mistake on the part of the left? Will, in the dystopian future that already seems upon us, the Islamists turn on their leftist apologists and smite the unbelievers all across the West? Most of the proclaimed values of the left are indeed abhorrent to Islam. In such an apocryphal conflict, I would place my money on believers in Allah rather than on believers in critical race theory, global warming, LGBTQ rights, and in their own feelings of superiority. The grooming gangs in the UK, on which you've so often reported, and the authorities' unwillingness or inability to do much about them seems a portent of how things might become in many other places before long. Maybe this is worthless bathroom time speculation on my part, but I'd appreciate your thoughts. God save the king and Britain. Well, Hart, yeah, I think I said this again. I don't want to say, as I was saying 20 years ago, in answer to every question, uh, but it's basically headed that way. I, I, you know, I said this sort of uh, vibrancy and diversity is the interregnum between the old Western societies and what is coming after. You're quite right, actually, to make the grooming gangs uh, parallel, because what happens in Telford, what happens in Rotherham, what happens in Oldham, what happens in Rochdale, what happens in your town here, is the way it's going to go more generally. So when you have a cultural phenomenon like Pakistani Muslim rape gangs. What's always interesting to me about these towns is they operate in plain sight. Any girl can tell you uh, the taxi networks that exist to support the rape gangs. Uh, they'll tell you the name of them and you'll look it up and you'll realize, oh, wait, wait a minute, this is the biggest taxi company in this town. Yeah, it is. 
Uh, oh, and those hooker bars. Yeah, that's the same thing. They, they, everybody knows these things. So in the alliance between uh, what you might call the traditional Western left, the Labour Party in England, and Islam, Islam are the top dogs. So that the, 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 the Labour Party left are prepared to let their women folk be gang raped rather than cross the Islamo enforcers. That's just the way it is. Now, Hart makes the point that this is how it's likely to go in the broader scheme of things, but you can see it already if you go to the Banlieue of Paris, uh, other parts of, uh, if you go to Molenbeek in, uh, in uh, Brussels, just across the uh, uh, the river there in Brussels, that uh, French women, Belgian women, German women, Dutch women in certain parts of uh, the town will go covered after 6 p.m. in the evening. So they're, they're women who would be showing fabulous French cleavage, fabulous leggy French demoiselle legs uh, in normal parts of the day, but when they go in certain parts of town, certainly in Toulouse, it was. I made a point. I made a point of actually looking when I was in Toulouse whatever it is now, five or six years ago, I made a point after dark because it is actually kind of... Med All the things that are charming during the day, like the little medieval streets with the intersections where there's like six lanes leading off a sort of small traffic circle or a, a triangular intersection. You know, all those things that are charming during the day become slightly menacing at night when you notice that there are there's increasingly only a certain type of person on the street. But it was interesting to me when you did run into women, including actually in the laundromat, uh, there were, uh, as I recall it, three uh, white women pretending to be covered women uh, and wearing a wardrobe that one would not have associated them from the look of the stuff they were washing uh, because it was just like uh, that's what you had to do to get around the town that uh, that time of night. So, yeah, I think you're I think obviously, you know, you have something beats nothing. So we have a big nothing. Whenever you start going on about all uh, oh, reparations for slavery, colonialism, whateverism. You're turning your inheritance into a big nothing, and you're ensuring that that nothing is going to be filled up by a something. And the something you think it's going to be filled up with is climate change and LGBT QWERTY and all the rest of it. And it isn't, because that's just a slightly more modish nothing. And as Hart points out, that's going to be steamrolled by something real, which Islam certainly is. Wanda Sherratt says, Mark, you've written so much about uh, popular music, but I don't know if I've ever heard you talk about movie soundtracks. I think they're the closest thing we have now to what opera was in the 19th century. Do you have a favorite film composer and uh, film score? I'm, I don't know whether it's the equivalent to opera. I don't, I don't think that is true. I get, you know, I was talking about this earlier. I get really sad when I think of the skills we've lost. And, and um, when I used to make this point, because I've made this point on the BBC or whatever years ago, 
And people just say, oh, well, yeah, but what we've got now, we've got all these new skills. Uh, we've, you know, we've got uh, uh, musical theater and popular song. And well, in case you haven't noticed, they're all pretty much Deadsville, too. Uh, I was listening to uh, Gene Simmons, the Kiss guy, on something or other the other day. And he's like saying, well, what you got to He's like, we've had 70 years of rock and roll now. OK, so like the first uh, 30 years, you have your like uh, uh, Elvis Presley, the Beatles, uh, the Rolling Stones. Uh, then you got your Elton John. And then and then, and then we got the last uh, half of that 70-year period, and there is no doubt there is a complete uh, lack of it. So, so the point is, it's not just we can't do opera and we can't do symphonies and we can't do sculpture and we can't do portraiture. Uh, we can't do any of the vernacular poppy forms that have come along, that came along in the 20th century either. They're all uh, fairly exhausted. I like... So for film music, I, I'm sort of... <laughs> uh, I, I took a bit of a... Uh, took a bit too long a warm-up to get to that question one. Well, no, I apologize. I love all the golden age. And this is why I think you're making the point you are, because I, I do think the guys wrote symphonic music for the movies. And there's no reason for that, if you think about it, when, uh, when there was silent pictures and then there were plays in which people talked. And somehow along the way, once they, uh, very quickly after 1927 and the jazz singer, they decided that somehow um, a talking picture wasn't going to be like a Broadway play, but there was going to be uh, all this fabulous underscoring too. And so I really like that golden age at uh, Warner Brothers and the other big studios that began in the early 30s and lasted really until things changed. I prefer that. Um, I would say like my uh, late, if you've, if you've heard our John Barry special, John did a lot of that. John, John was one of the last of those composers. So I like um, uh, uh, Eric Wolfgang Korngold and Max Steiner uh, and those really glorious scores. And then I like the fellows who came along a generation later, like Elmer Bernstein and co. And then in the 60s, uh, people like uh, John Barry, when John did the Bond films and uh, scored Born Free and all the rest of it. Um, and then it all, I think, John didn't like it when uh, in the, I guess, starting in the late 80s, 90s, whatever, when uh, a studio would say, we'd like you to write the film, but we're also going to get you know, Phil Collins to do a big pop song in it. And he didn't like that. He said, no, in that case, you know, I'm walking. I'm not going to do it. Because he didn't want to do it. He felt it all, you know, some, if you look at uh, um, Casablanca, the way that, well, actually, I won't say any more about that because we've done a serenade radio show on it. So you can actually find that on uh at at uh, at Stein online, but and 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 but but that's that they're the the golden age, and then I guess what you'd call the silver age that carried on in the sixties. But now I don't I don't uh, I'm not too keen. On, you know, sometimes like when I go with my kids to see a movie, they'll say, "Oh, let's go and see X Men Thirty Seven. 
and I don't really want to see X-Men 37, but sometimes I go along because I'm just interested to hear what the guy who's been asked to do the score does. And he's not really, if you think that's, I, that isn't really the equivalent of uh, opera. Um, but I have talked about movie soundtracks uh, on and off, but I've done, in fact, some, I uh, did long ago, I did some radio shows and things on it. And one of, one of the first albums I ever got sent was a fantastic uh, uh, sort of double album, double LP of Warner Brothers Golden Age film scores. And I used to play that all the... And there was a period, I would say now we're talking about the 1980s, when the classical labels of a lot of record companies uh, would put out albums of Eric Wolfgang Korngold or... Max Steiner or Dmitry Tiomkin or whoever, and I, uh, I always love to play that. I always love to play those uh, on the radio. So uh, that's how I feel about that one, uh, Wanda. I feel, and I'm not saying I don't like John Williams or I don't like. I like Michel Michel Legrand. I love uh, very much when he's doing a film score. Um, but uh, but but the guys who are doing X Men Thirty Seven and Cardboard Man Forty Two, I'm not so big on those. Frank Gallenstein or Gallenstein says, "Hi, Mark. Enjoyed your appearance on Megan Kelly's show. Will you be appearing on Bo Snardley's show any time in the future? Where have you been, Frank? I was on his show Tuesday. We did a double dose uh, to welcome me back to uh, Bo Snardley's Rush Hour on WABC, and I will be back with Bo this Tuesday. Jess Bland says, Mark, do you think the new head of CNN is serious about writing the ship and maybe becoming America's GB News? I may have missed it, but I haven't heard Bo Snardley ask if the great Mark Stein has had a call from them. You know, uh, they would be great uh, hiring... Uh, Megan Kelly, if they if they want to do something like that, I just love being interviewed by Megan because she uh, she actually whatever you think about her, I know people don't like her. There were people there were people who have never forgiven her for the uh, the whatever it was the exchange with Trump in that long ago debate. It's all ancient history. I always used to like going on Megan's show. Uh, the Kelly file, I think it was called. And um, I found because Megan is a very engaged interviewer and asks very sharp questions. And I like so it's always a pleasure to be in her company for that. Uh, Drew, but as to what CNN are doing, look, uh, we live in very polarized times. So uh, often they're just pseudo polarized. A lot of the things that people think of uh, that again to, uh, that's why I go back to first principles you know which is what's so important it's why I uh, in- interviewed Julian Assange's brother I've interviewed him at Fox and I've interviewed him at GB News he's a man of the left uh, but basically so so he's you've got this situation where people on the right don't want to uh, talk about because ah well he leaked American secrets so he deserves to go to jail. No, what are you on about? He's a publisher, just like the New York Times, and uh, apart from that, he's one of the Queen's Australian subjects, so he knows no he owes no bloody allegiance to the United States government. If you can't keep your secrets, it's because millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people have a security clearance, which is stupid. 
It's why you're Bozo Central, your intelligence services. So because he embarrassed you, you want to get him. Well, that's not good enough for me. I don't care whether he's a lefty. I don't care whether his brother's a lefty. It's about first principles. And if you as an American thought about it the other way round, you know, you would just happen to be in a third country. You were taking a vacation in Costa Rica and the government suddenly threw you in prison because Australia had filed an extradition request because you leaked something the Australians didn't want you to. You imagine if Americans had to be subject to that. We've got to have first principles in some of the it's why it's so it's why it's so boring because it, then it just gets transactional and the transactionalism uh, suddenly changes so you have uh, that's how you have all these rock-ribbed conservatives from a decade ago the kind of people that used to give me blurbs for my book and rave reviews to my book and even teach my books in class, as Bill Crystal does. And suddenly they're all voting for Biden. And like Max Boot, uh, they're saying that, uh, that Martha's Vineyard and Provincetown are the real America. <laughs> and, uh, and anything west of there is just some freaky aberration. You know, this is where it gets when you don't think about things in terms of first uh, principles. Uh, Drew Weber says, Hello, Mark. Any thoughts on why China continues strict COVID lockdowns while much of the world, including nearby South Korea, has learned to live with COVID? Extreme care for the health of its individual citizens is not in their MO. Might lockdowns be a way to slow business in China and create a ripple effect causing hardship in the West? Or is it a dress rehearsal for a virus more lethal than COVID? It seems odd. Yeah, there's a lot of odd things that are around. There's actually a peer-reviewed paper. I forget the journal it's been accepted by, but it's peer-reviewed, and the peers who reviewed it came to the same conclusion. And that conclusion was that Omicron is an artif it's not a natural genetic mutation of COVID. It's a consciously created and manipulated variation. Aha. Uh -huh. So who's doing this? Why are they doing this? And then you look at what's happening in China. And again, why is China road testing even more severe restraints on the general population. And I think you have to say that there's a purpose behind it. I would, I would rather now. I don't want to lock down for anything ever again. I just don't uh, ever. I don't care what it is, really, because I think whatever it is, it makes it worse, particularly when what you're doing is basically then the WHO says, oh, you know, we've got this, the monkeypox has now mutated with the Omicron and is causing this new monkeycron thing. And the best way to deal with this, fortunately, we have a model for it in what China has been doing in, you know, it's not, it's, there's no reason now not uh, to be completely paranoid about all this stuff. Maria writes, Mark, credit card companies are now going to track gun store sales separately. They used to be considered general merchandise. Is this an attack on the Second Amendment, a move to greater control in the cashless society, or both? Yeah, it's all those. And then, as I said, Peter Brimelow of vdare.com. 
And again, I know there are people who don't like VDare.com. They're opposed not just to illegal immigration, but they're opposed to basically the post-1965 model of U.S. immigration, quite reasonably. I think it's destroying America. And um, so and they're entitled to, I'm to agree with them, and they're entitled to argue their case. But the fact is now, uh, you can be designated. They were designated by the SPLC as a hate group. So suddenly people basically... PayPal is a, a monopoly. The credit card companies, which is basically uh, Visa, MasterCard, uh, American Express, what's the other one? Discover. So it's basically a four-card cartel. So if they deny you service and then there's no cash anymore, then basically they're out of, out of business. And that's what's going to happen. You know, there's going to be a mass shooting and MasterCard will or will say, oh, yeah, I think we're not going to do the credit card sale. OK, so then you're going to have to have a huge sum of cash, huge sums of cash. Uh, as you know, uh, Britain is, uh, we interviewed uh, my friend Leilani about it because I think she'd been trying to withdraw £2,000. She was actually, I think she was buying a horse or something. And they wanted to know what she was withdrawing the money for and why she was doing it. Now, that's, they've got the American thing here with $10,000, uh, which also means that if you insist on drawing amounts of 9900 out, that also becomes suspicious activity. Basically, they're doing all this because... You're going to have to live the way these guys want you to live. They all think the same. So all the, the crap that uh, the parochial drivel that a lot of these uh, idiot talk show hosts talk about doesn't really make any difference because in the end, as you know, all the people who are screwing your life are all palling around at Davos with foreigners. Uh, every year. So if you think they're thinking about the American Constitution and uh, what is proper and constitute, they don't think like that. They think, oh, they think, oh, this uh, this this uh, this uh, French guy who used to work for Goldman Sachs in uh, in Hong Kong. He he told me this great thing, this great idea, and you know, they're part. They're not. They've. They've abandoned, they're not, they're like 1-800 numbers. You have no idea where they're sitting. Then they're, they're from everywhere and nowhere. And they're making all the decisions for you. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. And I have enjoyed all your questions. And as usual, we've had far more than we can get to. Uh, let's have a little bit more music to close. So Hubert Parry's setting of the 122nd psalm as i said it um uh, was one of uh, our late sovereign's favorite uh, pieces of music uh, and uh, sir hubert's setting is by far the most famous but many other composers have felt moved to set it and a few of those versions have figured at British coronations over the centuries. If you were at Westminster Abbey on St. George's Day, uh, 1685, uh, for the coronation of James II, you would have heard this version 
of I Was Glad When They Said Unto Me by Henry Purcell.
was glad when they said unto me, as set not by Sir Hubert Parry, but by Henry Purcell, and as played at the coronation of King James II of England and Ireland, James VII of Scotland, on April 23rd, 1685, at Westminster Abbey. That was the choir of Trinity College, Cambridge, under the direction of Richard Marlowe. We shall have a little more royal music for you of quite a different kind on our Song of the Week. Stay safe, stay free. God save the King. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.